Good morning, I'm Andy Studebaker, and today we will be reading from Revelation 21, 1 through 8, which can be found on page 1041 of your Pew Bible. Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake, of, in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, everyone. Hey, if you're saying to yourself, that's an odd Mother's Day text, let me, uh, let me explain. I actually thought about this. And if you're going at this time like, oh, gosh, I feel sorry for your mom. If you thought this was like a Mother's Day thing, what must your childhood gifts be like for your mother? But um, I actually think this is a helpful word to moms. I mean, we could preach like 10 ways to be an awesome mom that would crush you. Or we could talk about ways like to deal with some longings. But um, I think this text is actually really beautiful. And I don't think I have to convince moms that there's good news in the fact that there will be a day when all sadness stops. When tears are dried, when pain is gone, when death will be no more. So actually... In a real tangible way, I want to promise, um, encourage, point to what, what Jesus has done for us, both as moms and as non-moms. I think even with a text like this that gets us in touch with what we long for is a great word for those who are in the thick of it, who actually wanted a message like, how do I make it through the day, like 10 tips to get through the day as a, as a mom. If that's where you are, I think this is a good word. If you've lost a mom, I think this is a good word. If you long to be a mom. I think this is a good word. If you're wondering how to love the women around you well, uh, this is, is a helpful word. So, so I actually thought about it from a sense of engaging with our longings. And, and I want to quote Jesus to give just a little bit of background if you're suspicious of my credentials here. In, in John 16, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And, and the editors of the scripture here titled this section, Your Sorrow Will Turn Into Joy. And starting in verse 20 of John 16, he says this, 
he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that, is, uh, that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again of these pregnant truths and moments of things that we long for, things that we wish were different. And this text says there's a way Christians are tuned to think about the future that helps them get through present suffering. The same way you endure the birth of a child, uh, and I've watched it a couple of times. I'm thankful I didn't go through it myself. Uh, it's in a profound moment, but in that space, moms endure that because of what awaits on the other side. And in that spirit, I think moms teach us something about how to wait for what's on the other side. If you've been with us, we're in Matthew. We're about to come into Matthew chapter 24, which has a lot to talk about end times and signs of the end times and tribulations and what we're looking for. And then months ago when I was outlining that passage, I came to that text and I thought, man, there's a ton here for us. If we don't zoom out to the why Jesus says this and get stuck down in some of the wins and the what's of what's going to happen, we could get really lost or frustrated. Jesus is going to address kind of how we think about waiting and what we're longing for, but, but maybe in ways that don't satisfy every single question that you have. That's Matthew 24. So months ago, as we kind of walked through that in my study, or I walked through that in my study and outlined some sermons in there, I thought we need a sermon that would just first lift our gaze to the why. Like, Why is this good news? Why would Jesus in the last couple of days of his life before he goes to the cross talk about tribulation and end times and signs of the end times? And how do we as people actually then engage that? So, so I mapped out, what if we talked about Revelation 21? And I saw on the calendar, oh, that's Mother's Day. Hey, that's perfect. It's perfect. If you wonder, it's perfect. And I want to actually just simply encourage you, whether you find yourself um, with children or not, longing for wherever you are, this word is a good word for all of us. And it's a word that's a challenge and a warning for those of you who are wondering what Christianity is about. There's a deep, deep invitation and a warning in this text, which that is good for us as well. So, so with all that in mind, let me just pray for us, um, asking for God to speak to us a word of hope from this text, even as we think about the groanings of this life. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this text, this passage, how it points to you and what you've accomplished for us and what you will still accomplished for us. We bring to you now these um, lives that are fragmented and they are filled with groaning. To read about tears being uh, dried is to acknowledge that we have tears now. To think about pain and death ceasing is to acknowledge, would you please speak to us? Would you open up our hearts to hear your word in such a way that we're transformed and changed, that we have hope, that we endure and as we think about all the stuff of today that we're feeling good, good and challenging, um, would you attach all of that to this text and orient us around your promises? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, maybe keep your finger in Revelation 21 and flip over to Matthew 24 real fast. Matthew 24, it's on page 829 if you're in that pew Bible. We have been walking through these last few days of Jesus' life, and we come to a section where uh, they've just done these woes to the Pharisees. 
And now they're leaving and transitioning and the disciples turn around in chapter 24 and look back at the temple in Jerusalem. Maybe you remember how even it ends in chapter 23 where Jesus says, I'm longing to gather you, Jerusalem, but you, you won't let me. So there's this kind of moment of sadness or rejection. They're now walking out of Jerusalem. They turn around and the disciples call Jesus' attention to the temple and to Jerusalem. Other passages tell us, like, look at the beauty of this, Jesus. And Jesus stops in verse 2 and says, Truly, or he says, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus looks back at this thing that was like the center of their faith and he says, Hey, all of this is going to be destroyed, which seems like an odd way to kind of go forward. They're celebrating the beauty of it. He says it's all going to be thrown down and crushed. Okay, now if you're a Jew in the first century, you know the Old Testament. You know, promises that God is going to remake everything. He's going to have a renewed Jerusalem. And so this is signaling for them like the end of time when God's going to actually make all things new. So their response in verse 3 of chapter 24 is, is to ask, when will this happen and what will be the signs? Look in verse 3, he says, He sat down on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They weren't just thinking about the physical temple they knew it represented the way that we related to God and they were longing for another way they knew the Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah 65 and 66 and they're they're saying when's this going to happen and how will we know when I engaged that I thought about us I thought about our temptation to focus on the when and the what it's not a bad question but without a why it can get us out of balance or it can get us disproportionate it's like maybe when you've like planned a vacation and you share with your children all the things that you're going to do. And, and like if you're like me, like I talk fast. What happens in here is way faster, I promise. So I just think in terms of like micro details. My poor wife, normally I'm up before her. And then when she comes downstairs for a cup of coffee, I just have so many ideas and so many thoughts I want to share and so many things I blast her with. So if I'm not careful when it comes to vacation, I'm like, all right, hey, here's all the things we're going to do. And I've got itineraries, or probably Adrian actually has itineraries, but, but I've thought through all these details, and I give it to our kids in like minute descriptions. And without fail, something will happen, and that order changes. And without fail, rather than celebrating the gracious gift of our Father taking us on vacation, enters in the, wait a second, we're supposed to go swimming now. But no, 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 hey, we're doing bingo now instead of swimming. And they're, no, no, you said swimming and then we're supposed to go eat lunch and then we're going to play bingo. Dad, you've messed this up. And so now this moment that's meant to be amazing because the itinerary or what they thought was the itinerary or what I communicated or what they heard that I communicated, they didn't really hear. Whatever it is, the details getting mixed up creates this sense of like frustration. Have you been there where you've like planned something in detail and almost got more excited about the itinerary than what it was actually for? Okay, I think in this space, when we think about end times for the next couple of weeks, there's a lot of questions you should have. How would we know? What are the signs? The questions they ask are good questions. But if we run down timelines and charts and start looking for signs, I think Jesus understands, not that we'll be disappointed because it's going to be glorious, but we'll be misfocused. Our hearts will be focused on the wrong thing. To be obsessed with signs, to miss what the sign is pointing to, would be disastrous. So, so that's why I wanted to kind of pull us into Revelation 21 because we're about to 
step into lots and lots and lots of questions and details. And to be really honest, you'll still have questions and details once we walk through Matthew 24 for a couple of weeks. But if we can have the why in front of us, like why is God doing this? If we can keep that firmly in our gaze, then I think not only will you be encouraged, but you can deal with or understand or make sense of the what and the when questions. There's something about even the way Jesus addresses their questions that is instructive to us because he doesn't give them exactly what they want, but he gives them enough to be faithful. And maybe that's my big burden. My big burden for you this morning is that you would focus on the fact that we get to be reconciled to God relationally and there's a reversing of the curse. That's what makes the next life amazing. It's not the details of the streets or what the gates are made out of or how even you might feel. What's amazing about the next life is that you get to be relationally reconciled to God and there is a reversing of the effects of the curse that you're haunted by. That's kind of my main idea. So if you're thinking about lunch or you forgot it was Mother's Day and you're on Amazon right now trying to get something drop shipped, like that, that's the thing that I want you to have in your mind. And I think it will actually orient us in ways that will give you hope. Because we're told to think about heaven. Actually, the passage that we kind of find as home base as a church, Colossians 3, 1 to 4, says that if we've been raised with Christ, we're to set our minds on things that are above, not on things of the earth. So we're actually told to think about this. So now you go, Pastor Chris, wait a second, you're telling us like, don't be so bogged down in the details. And a text like this tells us to think about it. But I think we have to think about it kind of in order of the why first and then the what's and the how's. Because how you think about the next life shapes how you live in this life. Even if you don't think there's a next life, that thought about the next life and there not being a next life very much shapes your hopes, your fears, what you invest in, how you think about yourself, how you think about others. We are shaped, even if you're not conscious of or ruminating on it, you have a passive thought about the future, it's very much shaping how you live. And the Bible would say to Christians, when you think rightly, about the why of the future, it radically changes how you live. So so we see like in Romans 8 that it gives us a deep, deep hope. Romans 8 verse 18 says this, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When I think about all the pain and all the suffering, all the trials, all the stuff I'm going through, those sufferings are nothing compared to the glory that will be the same way a mom gives birth to a child. He's actually going to use that metaphor in verse 22. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, we are groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemptions of our body. For in this we hope. We have hope. We were looking to this thing that we can't see and we're waiting for it with patience. Thinking about the future gives you hope amidst the groaning. 2 Corinthians 4.17 tells us that thinking about the future gives us perseverance. It says, for this light and momentary affliction, the things that I'm suffering, I can persevere through those because it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that's beyond comparison. So that there's hope and there's perseverance as we set our hearts on the why. First Peter chapter 1 
tells us that there's a security. It reminds us that we're safe and we're kept because verse 4 says that there's an inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you. So when all the world is breaking loose and everything is chaotic in your life, all the relational failure, all the betrayal, all the loss, all the suffering, all the stuff that you wish was different, there is a security that comes from knowing what I'm longing for and where I'm going is secure and kept for me. And then Hebrews 11 and 12 would tell us that it actually produces holiness in us. We're willing to endure hardship and throw off the restraints of sin to lay aside every weight that so easily entangles us as we think about what is on the other side for us. It just lists this people in chapter 11 of Hebrews who were willing to endure, and they endured for the hope of what was to come. And the application of that in chapter 12 of Hebrews is, therefore let us, in light of their witness, throw off all the things that entangle us, all the sin that clings to us. So, so I don't know if you need hope. I don't know if you need perseverance. I don't know if you need a sense of security or if you're struggling in your quest for holiness, your desire to actually see transformation happen. But the scriptures would say all of those are rooted in our understanding of the next life. And again, I think we could talk about all the details of the timeline, but if we can keep the E on the I chart in front of us, I think it will radically actually change us. So, so I want to say why. Why is this good news? What's there that's worth living for? What's there that's worth suffering for? What's there that actually can sustain you in this life? And the two points I want to make simply are there is restoration of our relationship with God and there is the reversal of the curse. Look with me in chapter 21 of Revelation. I'm back there now. It's on page 1041. Verse 1 says this, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride ordained or adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, all the things of this earth, have passed away. So this clearly is quoting two things. One is Genesis 1 and 2, which is where the whole story begins. We hear where we come from, from the first two chapters of the first book of the Bible. And then we hear where we're going from the last two chapters of the last book of the Bible. Not by accident. God has bookended our experience of suffering and pain and longing with a beautiful description that he's the author of everything. He created, he made, he sustains, and he made it perfect. And then he's going to keep his promise to remake, to, to restore. That what he set out to do in Genesis 1 and 2, he will accomplish in Revelation 21 and 22. So these four chapters, two at the beginning and two at the end, are the chapters that are free from sin and suffering and stain. The rest of it in the middle is this groaning, is this weeping, is this tears, is this thing that actually has pain and mourning marked by it. And what the Revelation writer wants to say to us right out the gate with this vision is that God is keeping his promise to make a new heaven and a new earth. And, and you would think about Isaiah 65 and 66 as well, that 
The imagery and the language there is just so dang clear. It's what God actually said he was going to do, and Jesus accomplished it for us in beautiful ways. And as we think about what he came to do, we, we just hear like it's beautiful and it's amazing. Let me just draw your attention to one thing in verse 1. When he says that the sea is going to be no more, the sea in Revelation and in antiquity represents chaos and pain and kind of things that are out of control. You, you think about those movies you've seen of sailors that go off and they're going to fall off the edge of the world and there's monsters in the water. To say there will be no more sea, whatever he's saying about this new heaven or new earth, it's going to be free of chaos. It's going to be free of pain. It's going to be free of there being disorder. It's going to be free of things that feel out of control because God himself will kind of rule and reign as he remakes in beautiful, beautiful ways. It's physical. It's not just this disembodied creation. It's a, it's a physical place, a heaven and an earth where our bodies will be restored. And we don't know exactly what it will be like, but maybe it will be like the way the scriptures talk about our resurrection bodies. Like, like our bodies are like seeds and they're put in the ground, and what comes out is connected to what goes in the ground, but looks quite a bit different, right? More glorious, more, more beautiful as that plant emerges. So, so it's physical, it's, it's in this space, and it will blow our minds and be better than we ever imagined. And if we stop simply with the creation, I think we come up way short, because the creation is meant to point us to the Creator, which is where it goes from there. He says in verse 2 of chapter 21, and I saw this holy city, this new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Okay, just bride imagery. We even talked in Matthew 22 about the way it talks about the new life. And there won't be marriages there. And we kind of circled around from like, what the heck does that actually mean? Remember, the idea of marriage is pointing to our relationship with God. So it's fascinating to hear that he would say, this new city coming down, the people of God, they look like a bride adorned for her husband. Right? It's all relational. The romance and the longing and the, the desire that God has for us is captured in this verse, as is the failure and unfaithfulness and adultery of a people. Remember in Matthew 23, he says, Jerusalem, I, I long to gather you, but you won't let me. I want to love you. I'm existing at every turn. And so now to see Jerusalem coming down as this beautiful, spotless bride is to speak about our redemption. That God actually wins over our brokenness and our failure. He reconciles us to him. He actually brings us into this loving relationship the way a husband draws a bride to himself. And this, this restoration of the relationship happens, he says in verse 3, As I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He just keeps kind of massaging this or kneading this in over and over again like a, a leaven into a dough so that we get it. The whole point is that God is now reconciled to us in ways that we are relationally able to be near to him. Christ accomplishes on the cross. We get the first fruits of that now. But there will be a glorious reuniting of God's people. And again, this is referencing back to Genesis 1 and 2. And if you remember the story, God creates everything perfect. But in Genesis chapter 3, we chose to break everything. Rather than being a faithful bride, we actually are unfaithful. And the scriptures warned in that space. God told them, hey, if you go outside the bounds of what I've designed for you, the bounds of our covenant, there will be death. And as sure as they hear the first temptation, they move towards what sounds better than God himself, which is the essence of every temptation that you experience. And then the death actually does come. 
And not in physical ways in the sense they drop dead, but a relational kind of death. Because the next thing that happens is God comes to walk with them like he always had. And they, instead of walking with him in relationship, the text tells us in Genesis 3.8 that they went and hid from him. Their shame pushed them away from him. They began to blame each other about why things were the way they were. So you have hiding and blame. It says they were afraid. And these things, instead of this near reunion with God, this relationship with God that's meant to be life-giving, what they now experience is what we experience of this fragmentation. Our lives are marked way more by shame, hiding, fear, and blame. What's so sad about this life is, is the sin and the way it affects our relationships. I mean, I mean, cancer is brutal. The physical things that we experience are brutal. But, but I would propose to you that it's way more painful. It's way more um, acute suffering to deal with the relational effects of sin. The ways you're harmed and the ways that you harm others. So for God to say, I'm with you. We've been reconciled. We've been reunited. We've actually now are in relationship. And he says it multiple times in multiple ways that what's beautiful about the next life is that we get to be with God without the hiding and the shame and the fear and the blame. Christ has atoned for all those things and we're brought into this beautiful relationship with him. There's a relational category of this bride and the restoration actually then begins to soothe the things that we long for. Again, I think the sin is the most painful part of our suffering. It's the thing about you that you hate the most, that you're frustrated by, that you wish was different. Things of inconsistency, the things that are, that are broken, which is why he then goes to the second point. We'll have relational restoration, and he says, I'm going to reverse the curse. Because the brokenness that happened there in Genesis 3, Jesus came to solve that problem on the cross. The, the brokenness that was there, all the frustration and the, the working pain and the relational pain and the birthing pain, all those things Jesus actually came to restore and to make new. And so this text goes on in chapter 21, verse 4. It says this, and he's going to take all of their tears and wipe them away. Wipe them away from every eye, and death shall be no more. Both kinds of death, both the physical death and the kind of death they experienced in Genesis chapter 3 that we experience every day of our lives. This kind of brokenness, the curse that came upon us in ways that now everything is fragmented and broken. Jesus is saying, I'm going to wipe all of that away. The things that are, are with you now, they, they're passing away, right? He says, there's not going to be any mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things, the things that mark this life, the things that, that haunt you, that are a descriptor of your everyday experience, those former things, he says, have passed away. What's beautiful about heaven is that we get to be with God and he removes the effects of our sin and brokenness finally. Just think about what that would be like. No more relational fragmentation. Think about the pain you feel, right? It's Mother's Day, right? Losing it with your kids or the longing to be a mom. The regrets you have as a mom. The things you experience with the pain of your own mom. Think about all of those things. All those things that are the result of the fall, the result of this blame and fear and hiding and shame, all of that now being restored and renewed. Right? We'll be in heaven without the lens that we currently see everything through, which is competitive, where we're trying to get from people, where we're trying to protect ourselves from people. All of that now goes away. 
The things that you actually are haunted by, addiction and dishonesty and betrayal, insecurity, anxiety, all the things that actually physically haunt you, he says, I'm going to take all those away. All right. When the disciples ask what and when, that totally matters. But if you can orient those questions around this, it will sustain you. What you get in heaven is a relationship with God fully restored and then a reversal and a removing of the curse. I've referenced Isaiah 65 and 66 a couple of times. Actually, if you're following along in our reading guide, which is kind of marking out sermons and then kind of related texts, you would have read this this week and you would have noticed the similarities. The imagery that's there, even this wiping away of tears and Jerusalem being renewed and there being no more death. Even a specific reference to the curse in Genesis 3 where it says your work will no longer be frustrated and babies won't die anymore. In that space you see a reversal of the curse that we saw in Genesis chapter 3. There's a relational restoration that God promised and it happens as he reverses the effects of the curse with us. Friends, what's beautiful about this is that Jesus is committed not just to giving you good gifts, but being the good gift. He knows that only he could satisfy the longings of your heart. And he knows the, the pain and the effects of all the things that you have experienced as you're looking to something else to fully satisfy. Again, that's, that's what sin is, to say, I'll be happier outside the covenant bounds of what God's created for me. If I find something else that will make me more satisfied, and the brokenness and the death that happens as we pursue that just has so many jagged edges all over your life. And to hear the good news, even on a day like today, that there's forgiveness and grace for those things. He promised it back in Genesis chapter 3. All the Old Testament is kind of pointing to our need for a Savior. Jesus comes and shows us that he was that one. He does miracles and he teaches. He dies in our place in such a way to make this promise even possible. And with all the questions that still swirl about how it's going to happen and what it all is going to look like and when will these things take place, what's secure and solid is the fact that we have this hope in God himself to actually see the restoration of all the things of our hearts. Hey, that will sustain us. When the scriptures tell us to think about heaven, to have our minds set on things of heaven, not on things of the earth, it's speaking about these things. Not timelines and charts necessarily, and those are not bad. I think those are actually important. They can serve us in their place. But if they become the preoccupation, we'll get ourselves into a spot where actually we're more focused on the itinerary than on where the itinerary is pointing us on the actual experience of what it means to actually be in a relationship with God. Okay, so I've kept saying that's the biggest part, right? Which is where he goes in the second section here. After he's just said, hey, what's beautiful about this is the restoration of the relationship and the reversal of the curse, he basically wants to just remind you who is the one who's saying this? Who has the power to do this? Who could actually make this possible? Look at me in verse 5 of chapter 21. And he who is seated on the throne... The one who rules and reigns over everything. He's the one who says, behold, I am making all things new. He starts your understanding of, can I, can I trust this? He roots it in God's authority, sitting over the entire universe on the throne. The one who's on the throne is the one who says this. Behold, I'm making all things new. And also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So his essence, he talks about his authority on the throne, and then the essence of who he is as the one who exists from the beginning 
to the end. The one who kind of is over everything, the bookends of all of life and existence itself. That one is the one who says, you can trust me, I will accomplish this. That one is the one who took on human form and came into our life, died in our place, absorbed the penalty for all of our sin and suffering so that he could wipe away every tear and still be just. So that he could actually remove all of the pain by absorbing it himself. He could actually atone for all the things that we have rightly deserved that would separate us from God. He made a way for us to be brought into relational reconciliation because he took all that upon himself. The one who sits on the throne, the one who's the beginning and the end. And then here's what he says to you. This is amazing. He doesn't say, so go be good. He says this, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. He doesn't say to the perfect, to those who get their act together. He says to the thirsty. Who is this good news for? It's good news for the thirsty who experience this life and recognize there's something inside of them that needs to be quenched outside of themselves. He says to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water without payment. And you should think about the way the scriptures say that the, the debt of our sin, the wage that we've earned is death itself. And without having to pay for that, he makes it possible for us to have life, to quench the thirst that we experience so that we can actually have hope. There's a deep, deep invitation to all who are thirsty, which I just love like as part of why we take communion, right? God gave us a physical meal with a real cup that actually symbolically represents how he quenched our thirst. It's an image of salvation. It's, a, it's, a, it's an image of us being needy and needing to be nourished. And we do it regularly to remind ourselves that this one is able to keep quenching and keep quenching. And in this life now, we still have a kind of thirst because things are not fully the way they're supposed to be yet. But you can experience regularly coming to Jesus to have that thirst quenched. And the text would end with a warning. There are those who won't come to God to have their thirst quenched. They're going to look to other things. He says, but for the cowardly and the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, for sexually immoral, for sorcerers, for, for idolaters, for liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Far from having their thirst quenched, they'll have an eternal thirst. If they keep looking to other things to satisfy their thirst, it will never actually be able to do that. Remember that sin isn't just bad stuff. We look to something else to satisfy you. You'll, you'll never be satisfied. In fact, you'll have to pay the penalty for your own sin yourself. And that will alienate you from God. Far from being reconciled to him, you'll be alienated for forever. And, and far from having the curse reversed, you're actually going to experience the full effects of that curse. The death that actually, he says, in the garden was going to happen because of sin. So there's an invitation. And there almost always is a warning associated with that. Just so that we're clear. So that when you're sitting here in this room and you're hearing, that sounds great. What's the minimum requirement to get that? You actually hear, no, no, there's not a minimum requirement. Jesus requires everything of you by faith. He says, come, he will satisfy your thirst. You don't have to pay for it, but it will cost you your whole life to follow after this one who made these promises to you so that you can be reconciled to him and so you can experience the reverse of the curse. And if you refuse to do that, the scripture is abundantly, soberly clear. You have to pay the penalty for those things yourself. You continue to experience the effects of that alienation and isolation. So I want to ask, are you thirsty? 
Will you come to Jesus as the one who will satisfy? Maybe this morning for the very first time, you would trust Christ as the one who could actually meet those needs, could, could satisfy the longings, could forgive you of your sin, could pay the debt and give you this water that will cause you to never thirst again. If you're not a follower of Jesus, there's an invitation here for you to come trust him. We're about to take communion. If you're going to trust him this morning, you're welcome to come and take this meal with us. If you're not ready, you can just sit in your seat and pray. There's some prayers in the back of the worship guide that will give you some, uh, some examples of how to pray. There's uh, some ways to kind of cry out to God and ask for help and clarity. So if you're not ready to trust him, you can sit in your seat and pray. But for all who are trusting, I want to invite you to come and participate in this meal, this bread and this cup representing the way God satisfies the thirst that we have and that we long for. Would you bow your head with me for just a moment? The scripture is clear of the good news and of the warning. I'm not sure which one you need to hear acutely this morning, but would you receive both of them as grace? Hearing the one who is the Alpha and the Omega makes both promises, both to satisfy completely and to judge justly. There's not like a neutral middle road. You either come to Jesus to have your thirst quenched or you go to something else that makes you thirsty for forever in paralyzing ways. Do you just soberly think about that? Do you cry out to God and ask for his help to have faith if you don't already? And if you do have faith, would you come rejoicing in the fact that Jesus accomplished this for you to give you a future and a hope? The way we take communion here is we tear a piece of the bread off and dip in the cup. The server's here in all the aisles. Gluten-free is here in the middle. I invite you to come whenever you're ready. And if you're not ready, just stay in your seat and pray. Jesus, we ask now in this moment that you would fill the room with joy, faith, and hope. You speak to us. Thank you for what you accomplished. Would you help us wrap our minds around this good news of what you have done? Thanks that you made a way for us to dwell with you. And thanks that you absorbed the penalty of the curse so that it could be removed, so it could be reversed. Help us now. We are thirsty. Help us now. We ask in Jesus' name.